Thank you, Elder Wingpo, and uh, for reading God's Word and leading us in service, and also Doris and the music team. Good morning, everyone. Welcome here, and uh, thanks for coming to service, even though I know it's a long weekend, and it was an opportunity for you to go overseas, but you chose to stay. So, well done. Well, uh, please keep your Bibles open, as well as uh, your bulletin. On page three of the bulletin, there's an outline. And as we uh, get that both open, allow me to just open us with a word of prayer. Let's go to God. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now this morning, uh, I begin with a piece of news. It was a scandal that rocked the world. The most powerful man in the nation committed adultery with a forbidden woman. Taking advantage of his influential position, he had betrayed the trust of his wife and his people. When there was a threat that his actions would be uncovered, he resorted to deceit to cover up this sin. However, the truth eventually came to light and he was disgraced and rebuked. Now, who was I talking about? Yes, it's the story of David and Bathsheba from 2 Samuel 11, right? And that's a poster from the 1951 uh, 20th century Fox movie, David and Bathsheba. But really, what I just described could as easily refer to the infamous Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. Right? It took place between 1995 to 97. It was uncovered finally in 1998. U.S. President Bill Clinton is the man in focus here. He had an affair with a White House intern, Monica Lewinsky. And his fa most famous line, I remember at the time I was uh, 89, how old was I? <laughs> Minus 30, right? So I was in my 20s. And his most famous line I remember on TV was this statement, that I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. But finally, it was the testimony of Miss Lewinsky and this semen-stained blue dress that proved Clinton's guilt. And he became the only, only the second US president in history to be impeached for perjury and obstruction of justice. Although he was subsequently acquitted, his reputation was ruined, his legacy was gone. Now, if the most powerful man in the world at the time had no power over his own lust, and if the king, who was famously known as a man after God's own heart, couldn't rule his own heart, then what hope do you and I have as ordinary, frail men and women? And like King David and Bill Clinton, we also often try to hide and to deny our sins. Why do we find it so hard to confess and to repent? And what does true repentance look like? What does God seek from us? And can there ever be true restoration after sin? And so that's why we come this morning to Psalm 51 and also the context in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 because these passages provide valuable insight into David's heart as he was confronted by the prophet Nathan concerning his sin. So let's start this morning by looking at uh, David's sin in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel and then the confrontation in chapter 12. And then in Psalm 51, we will then get a forensic examination of David's heart his, his repentance as he undergoes the process of confession, purification, and his response to that. Okay? 
So we're going to do, in a way, a CPR of sin, confession, purification, and response. Now, the title of this psalm, uh, in verse 1, tells us that this psalm is written to the choir master. It's a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This title is ancient, and so it's likely to be original. It's meant to give us the context or the background to the composition of this psalm. Now, there is some discussion about whether this psalm was really written by David himself or by someone else later, because both are possible. But as it is, the writer wants us to see this as David's own words after two events have happened. The first event is after David went into Bathsheba, alluding to his sin in 2 Samuel 11, and after Nathan the prophet went in to David, alluding to the confrontation in chapter 12. So for those of us who are not familiar with the story, it's worth reading both chapters in detail. But uh, this morning, we can only attempt a very short overview. If you're interested to find out more about uh, the events in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, I believe Pastor Chris has recorded a sermon, and this will be uploaded on podcast. Okay? So the account of David's Bathsheba, uh, David and Bathsheba is found in chapter 11, verses 1 to 5 which we, we haven't read, but if you turn with me to the Bible, to 2 Samuel 11, you'll find that every action that David takes here sets him firmly on this pathway of sin. Right, so in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, first David sent Joab to lead the troops on their war excursion in spring. And it was a time we are told when kings usually went out together with their troops. Instead, David remained in Jerusalem, in the comfort of his palace, while his troops engaged in fierce conflict out in the field. It seems like David has grown slack after some years. He's grown complacent after God gave him some victories. Next, David arose from his couch late one afternoon, right, which means he has slept in right, till late afternoon. And from the roof of the king's house, which towered over other houses in the city, David saw a woman bathing. And perhaps it was through an open window that he saw this. He must have allowed his eyes to linger on because he could see the woman was very beautiful. And so he sent and he inquired about her. Having found who this woman was, David disregarded the fact that she is the precious daughter of Eliam and the beloved wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so he was, he was not... He was not even considering her as a person. He just sent messengers and took her and lay with her. This account doesn't tell us what is Bathsheba's role in this, whether this was consensual, whether it was seduction, or was it rape. But there was no need to know because the narrator squarely places the blame on David and David alone. Secret sins that are done in, in darkness will always be exposed in the light of God's dawn. And as Bathsheba returned home, we are told that she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, meaning that she had just had a menstruation, and so she was definitely not pregnant before David went into her. And now the narrator tells us, the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now if you recount the whole thing, David had just broken the 7th, 8th, and 10th commandments, right? Do not commit adultery, he's done that. Do not steal, he's stolen his neighbor's wife. And do not covet, 
your neighbor's wife. And David will continue down the slippery slope of sin as he hurries to bring Uriah back from the battlefield and he tries to trick him to sleep with Bathsheba so that he would think that this baby is his own. And so you could say here that David was bearing false witness against his neighbor. He was lying, and that's the ninth commandment. When even that fails, David resorts to murder, thus breaking the sixth commandment. He orders Joab to place Uriah in the thick of battle and then withdrawing all the troops so that Uriah is left to die. And after Bathsheba had finished mourning for her husband, David then took her as his wife. And so he plays the role of benevolent king who provides for a helpless widow and her newborn son. Such hypocrisy there, right? But really, if you think about it, that is you and me too, isn't it? We often try to hide our sin by justifying it so that we look good while doing evil. When we take vengeance, for example, on someone who has wronged us, we, we justify it and we say that we are actually protecting others from suffering the same injustice. When we lie to save ourselves, we say it's to protect the innocent. You see, our hearts, you and I, our hearts can be so deceitful that we sometimes believe our own lies. Notice so far in this story, if you are following the account, there has been no mention of God until the very last line of the last verse in verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God is the last word in this chapter, and God will have the last word here. Perhaps no one knows what we do, but God knows, and he will always do something about it. So in chapter 12, verse 1, God does something. The Lord sends Nathan to David. And the prophet tells a parable that David didn't know was referring to himself. After David has spoken judgment on the guilty man, Nathan reveals, let's read this together, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I have anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight? See, from what Nathan tells David, God hasn't been stingy to David at all. In fact, he has been exceedingly generous. He's given David all that he needs and more. And yet David's chief sin here, he's taken the one thing that was forbidden of from him, the wife of another man. In the end, David's chief sin was really despising God's word and doing what is evil in God's sight. He has essentially broken the, the commandments governing our relationship with God as well, since now his true God was himself and his appetite. Now, to his credit, David immediately repents, right? In verse 13, let's read together. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. See, the Lord's forgiveness is as swift as David's repentance. But forgiveness doesn't mean no consequence. 
David's sin will result in the death of his first child with Bathsheba. Now you may be wondering, since David repented, right, once Nathan confronted him, and God had immediately forgiven him, then why did he write Psalm 51? Why is Psalm 51 necessary? And so we'll explore this later. But for now, let's take a closer look at the psalm, because the psalm is a forensic examination of David's penitence as he undergoes the process of confession, a prayer for purification, and the promise of a response. In verses 1 to 6, let's zoom in to verse, verse 1. David confesses his sin as he pleads with God to have mercy on him. Verse 1. David pleads, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now he's deeply aware of his spiritual bankruptcy. And David knows that he can approach God only because of who God is, because of God's character. How do you know if you can trust somebody? Recently, a very close friend from school, an uh, old friend, he caught and he tried to borrow money from me because he said his business uh, was taking a hit. And I remember he had done so earlier in the year and a few years ago as well. And both times I had lent money to him and he had returned the loan. But I asked around and I found that he has also been borrowing from others due to a constant financial mismanagement. And so this time, very sadly, I had to refuse to help him. Now, if it had been a friend or a family member, it might have been different. You see, you and I, we measure people's trustworthiness based on their character and whether their past track record has been consistent. God had revealed his name and character to, God, to Moses and to Israel in Exodus 34. So let's read this together. This is uh, God appearing to Moses. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, God revealed his character to, and his name to Israel, and he has proven true to Israel in his character, in his past dealings with them. And now three of these divine attributes in Exodus 34 are being used in David's plea in Psalm 51 verse 1. God's mercy or his compassion, God's graciousness, and his steadfast covenant love for his people. These are God's eternal attributes. And even today, we can come to God only, also only because of his mercy, his grace, and his love. David goes on to present his requests to God in verses 1 and 2, starting from the second half of verse 1. He says, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Blot out, wash, cleanse. All three of these are intense pleas, besieging God to cleanse him and forgive his sins. And these are terms borrowed from domestic activities, the washing of clothes, as well as temple activities, the ritual cleansing of the believer. 
Later, in verses 7 and 9, we get the same words again, right? But this time in reverse order, as David asked for purification. So let's read this together. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. This three, the three verbs here are the same. And these three verbs for cleansing here in verses 1 and 2, next slide, they are paired with three words for sin. Right? Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So what's the difference between the three? Well, some people suggest that transgression is a willful and self-assertive defiance of God. It's telling God, no. Iniquity is error or deviation from the right track. And lastly, sin is simply missing the mark. And the psalmist would use these three words throughout the psalm. But commentator Gerard Wilson says this, that rather than focus on specific types of sin, the use of all three terms seems intended to be comprehensive so that the psalmist's confession is far-reaching and complete, indicating the whole constellation of sin is intended. We shall see this comprehensive repentance in verses 3 and 5 also. Shall we read this together? For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See the words in yellow there? I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. This shows us that the psalmist has a deep and personal acknowledgement and ownership of his own responsibility here. And perhaps he's being reminded by the consequences of his sins and his deep personal guilt. David was made constantly aware of his sin. This is a fitting humiliation, uh, a fitting humility rather. This is a fitting humility for frail humanity. In verse 5, he continues to acknowledge what is termed as original sin. I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. What does this mean, original sin? Well, this means that as a result of the fall, every one of us here, sitting here, you and I, we have, been, we have inherited an inherent fallenness or sinful nature from our first fathers, our first parents, Adam and Eve. You and I are now affected by our sinful nature in every part of us, body, mind, and soul. And that is the doctrine of total depravity. But David doesn't blame his genes or even God. Instead, he acknowledges his personal sin and he accepts full responsibility. So who are we blaming for our sins? When my wife and I started having children, we discovered to our horror that there were great genetic risks. You see, my family has a family history of hypertension or high blood pressure. June's family has a history of familiar hypercholesterolemia, which is basically a genetic predisposition to high cholesterol. So you can say that our kids are high flyers, right? Because they have a predisposition to both high cholesterol and high blood pressure. 
But you see, we cannot blame our children for our, we cannot blame our children. We cannot blame our parents for passing down 40 genes to us. Ultimately, we are also responsible for how we live our lives. Given the genetics, certainly medical treatment may be inevitable at some point. But our lifestyle and our willingness to seek treatment also will be, will be a part in our overall health. In the same way, although we've all inherited a sinful nature, right, just as we inherited uh, hypertension from our parents, each one of us is still personally responsible for choosing to do sinful deeds. And so that's why in verse 4, David confesses to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David here is not denying that he has sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and even his whole nation. Rather, he knows that although he has broken the commandments that govern human relationships, horizontal relationships, murder, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, coveting, but fundamentally, his sin was vertical against God himself because he had broken God's commands. And as Israel's king, he has also failed to lead his people to keep the covenant. So he's morally accountable to God. And God is justified and God is righteous when he judges David. Finally, in verse 6, David says, Behold, you, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In these two verses, there could be a possible intensification. So what David could have been saying is this, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David acknowledges that if there's to be truth in his inward being, God must do the work. And so from verse 7 onwards, having confessed his sins to God, David now prays for God to purify him. Verse 7, he prays this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my transgressions, all my iniquities. In short, here what David is doing is he's asking God to purify him, to cleanse him. Hesop was used in the temple for ritual cleansing, and David wants to be cleansed, to be whiter than snow. That's whiter than snow white, although now he's as peach dark as Cinderella. The bones that God has broken here is perhaps a metaphor for God's divine judgment. And so David is asking for a reversal of judgment in exchange for the joy and the gladness of salvation. He's asking God to cancel out the ledger of, of debts that he has. Verse 10 onwards, let's read together. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, to be purified and to be made clean forever, David realizes that he needs a new heart and a new spirit. And that is precisely what God would one day promise his people in Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27. Let's read this together, shall we? 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in Psalm 51, when David was asking God for a new spirit and a new heart, he was anticipating God's future promise when he were he will be able to be receiving this new heart and new spirit to obey God. See, David realizes without this new heart and new spirit, you and I have no power to obey God in our old sinful nature. He uses the word spirit in verse 10, verse 12, and later in verse 17 to refer to the inner being, the center of our human emotions, thoughts, and will. However, in verse 11, when he uses the term Holy Spirit, he seems to point to something more than this, to something that uh, Ezekiel is talking about, but also the only other place in the Old Testament where the, the term Holy Spirit appears is in Isaiah 63, verse 10. And this is addressed to the Jewish exiles. But they, that's the uh, first the generation of the Jews who went into exile, They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who puts in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gives gives them rest." See here, this is the only other place where the term Holy Spirit is used. And here, the Holy Spirit seems to be a person who can be grieved, right? Just as in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit also is a person who gives rest to God's people. It's a symbol of God's abiding presence with the Exodus generation. And here in Psalm 51 verse 11, he's also paralleled with God's presence. Perhaps David recalls how God's spirit had left King Saul in 1 Samuel 16 when Saul continually rebelled against God. And so David was pleading with God here not to withdraw his presence from him. By contrast, how about you and I? As the New Testament church and believers, we need need not fear anymore that God will withdraw his spirit from us or his presence from us. Because Jesus has promised to be with us always to the very end of the age, in Matthew 28, verse 20. And that promise was fulfilled in Acts 2 through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on the church. And the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer from the point when we heard the gospel and believe in Jesus. And he's the seal to guarantee our inheritance at the Lord's return. That's Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. So we should... We should not fear that God will withdraw His Spirit from us, but we should fear and continue to fear that God may withdraw His favour from us if we continue to rebel against Him and we harden our hearts against His Word. So you and I still ought to yearn for God's purification, to pray this, that God would create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me so that you and I will be able to obey God. 
God's purification of His people is so that we'll be able to obey Him, for our obedience of Him. Finally, in verse 13, David responds to God with a promise. If God would forgive him and purify him, then David pledges, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Essentially, David is promising to testify or to evangelize for God. See, out of the depths of his great sins and ingratitude for God's cleansing forgiveness, David now wants to teach God's way to fellow sinners, like a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. He would sing aloud of God's righteousness and declare God's praise. His goal is the salvation of other sinners and the glory of God. In verse 16, For you will not delight in, the, in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, David realizes that before God can give us this new spirit and new heart, we must first surrender our old, broken heart and spirit to him. And then in the last two verses, this is perhaps David, or more likely a later editor of this psalm who lived during the exile. He adds these two verses to the ending. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem that has been torn down, of course. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then booze will be offered on your altar. See, in adding these two verses, this allows God's people to appropriate David's personal psalm of penitence for their own confession. And that is also why David recorded this psalm, although he has been forgiven by God when he repented. Right? He wants to teach others how to repent as well and to point them to God's grace and forgiveness if they do. We see here that God's salvation of his people is for our lifelong and whole life response to Him in worship of Him. In Paul's words from Romans 12 verse 1, it's the same thing. When Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that Paul had laid down in the first 11 chapters of Romans, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the goal of our salvation is for worship. And here I think are some lessons that we can learn from David right, in terms of application. The first lesson is, do we also recognize how depraved we are and how desperately we need God's mercy? You and I have sinned against God. And although sometimes our sin may be committed against one another, but do we spend time to reflect on how our petty relational sins with others are really offensive to God himself? For example, you may think that it's a small thing to squabble within your discipleship group or your basic Bible study groups, to lie to your parents so that you get to go out with friends, or to bully your partner to get your own way in your marriage or courtship, or perhaps to gossip to gossip about a fellow church member, a colleague, or a church leader. 
But these are really breaking God's own heart. These are really breaking God's commands in the book of Ephesians as well, right? which we just read as a church. So do we see that these relational sins are also sins against our God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for the purity, unity, and maturity of His church? Do we see that our sins are an affront to God Himself? Second, David reflected deeply and extensively on his sin. Using different words for sin, David dredged the depths of his own heart and he acknowledged his personal responsibility and the extensiveness of his sins. And I wonder if we recognize our personal culpability or do we hide and deny it? Having come to faith in an Anglican church and I was part of one for 14 years, I can still recite from memory the words of this prayer or confession in the Book of Common Prayer. So if you know this, you can say this together with me. Pray this along with me if you like. It says, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our neighbour. In thought and word and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate thoughts, we are truly sorry and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. See, it's actually like muscle memory to me, reflex. This prayer can be quite worthless if I say it the way I just did. If I merely say it in thoughtless repetition week after week. But if you look carefully at these words, they are really meaningful and they can be really helpful for us with thoughtful reflection. I think if you look carefully now, you know, forget, forgive me for reciting it so quickly, if you look at it carefully now, I think it's a good prayer that truly comprehensively surveys our human sinful nature and it genuinely confesses our personal responsibility as well. And so the many of the reformers also recommend that we should pray written prayers for confession in our public worship. And so here is Calvin's version of it. Slightly longer, so that's why I didn't read it out. But later at the end of this uh, sermon, I'm going to ask you to pray this sincerely uh, with me. And as we pray, we're going to pray slowly and reflectively. So if you're wondering where do we start, I don't know where to start because my sins are so great. Where should I start confessing my sin to God? Well, I suggest that we could use some of these words of written prayers. We could also pray Psalm 51 or one of the other six, seven penitential psalms. But before we even go there to pray all these prayers, we should take stock. We should reflect and consider what are some of the specific sins that we've committed. Because this is where God differs from the military. Right? What do I mean? Well, the private matters as much to God as the general. The private matters as much to God as the general. So don't just pray for our general sins, the sins that publicly can be sinned, but pray also about our private and personal sins. By private personal sins here, I mean the sins that we can't keep secrets from others anger in our hearts, the secret pressure, pleasure of pornography, stealing of time from work, and so on. And you and I may think that, hey, watching porn doesn't harm anyone, right? But any sin at all is really offensive to God, and therefore it should matter to us. These sins may be hidden to others, 
but God's light shines bright and clear on them all, and everything will be laid bare one day. And you may say, since God already knows, then why bother hiding and denying it? Just confess it to Him and ask Him for forgiveness. Third, don't offer sacrifices to God without first offering up our broken and contrite hearts. Many Christians today still try to atone for sins through service or through uh, religious piety. So what I do when I sin, when I know that I've sinned against God, is I try to read the Bible more. Right? I pray longer prayers as if praying half an hour compared to five minutes pleases God. Or perhaps I serve more in church or I come to church more often, but now no choice, I have to come to church every day. You know, things, things like that we can do. Right? And all this in themselves are good and proper. But unless and until we first offer our brokenness and contrition to God, unless we confess our sins and desperate need for His forgiveness and purification, all this wouldn't please God at all. In fact, they'll be repulsive to Him. The true sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Lastly, David pleaded for mercy on what basis? Not on the basis of his own goodness, his service of God, but on the basis of God's own character, God's divine attributes. So do you and I also know God's steadfast love, his mercy and his graciousness to us? And for us as New Covenant people, we know God's love, mercy and grace, chiefly by his great saving event. Not the Exodus event, that's for the Old Covenant Israel, but for us, it's at the cross, the cross of Jesus. And so we see in 1 John chapter 1, it was only after John says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, that he's then able to confidently declare, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, like any child here, if we are not able to know the love and forgiveness of our parents, this child wouldn't have the courage to confess wrongdoing or even to let them sign their exam paper. As God's forgiven children, we can and we should confess our sins regularly to God because this is a God who has received us. This is a God who forgives us. We confess not because God needs us to inform Him, because He knows all things, but it's really for our own conscience. It's really so that you and I will have the confidence to walk with God and to continue in our relationship with Him. We confess also from what David shares to tell others about how God has extended grace to us. We confess because we want to show people that God is so good in spite of how bad we are. Is really to evangelize. And so, sorry, Bill Clinton refused to admit to his sins until he was confronted with the evidences of his wrongdoing. King David also remained blind to his own sin until the prophet Nathan confronted him. How open are you and I to rebuke and to confession? As I reflect on this personally, I found that when I sin or when I offend my wife, I used to say sorry and I'll expect her to instantly forgive me. 
And sometimes I may make a peace offering by buying something for her or bringing her out. But soon I will make the same mistake again and again. And finally, June will have to sit me down and just tell me, what exactly do you think you did wrong? There has to be often a time of true brokenness in spirit, deep acknowledgement of my sin, and sincere prayer for God's restoration before there can be genuine reconciliation between us. And I think that I often resort to superficial sacrifices without, because I, through that I avoid deep soul-searching and I avoid true repentance. Because as men, we try to quickly solve the problem rather than to talk deeply about it. But you see, the process of confession and God's restoration cannot be rushed. This is not just for men, right? The women are not exempted, and especially Asians in general. We do have a tendency to try to sweep things under the carpet, right? When someone does wrong against us and we do something wrong, we, we sweep and sweep until there's a bump there and we get tripped up by it, right? We like to laugh it off. Oh, it's just a, a simple mistake. Or we offer superficial solutions to patch things up. It's like using adhesive tape to repair a broken vase. It is only a temporary and very ugly solution. This vase or vase will sooner or later fall apart or be broken again. But if we confess our sins and we ask God to fix our brokenness, as David did, then God will forgive us, he will mend us, and he will use us again for his service. Here's a confession. In May this year, I read this article, so I've been praying that I would get to use this as an illustration. So finally, I get to use it. Uh, allow me to do this. Right, so this article is on the Japanese art of kinzuki, or golden joinery. Allow me to read from this article. Kinzuchi is the centuries-old Japanese art of fixing broken pottery. Rather than rejoin ceramic pieces with a camouflage adhesive, the Kinzuchi technique employs a special tree-set lacquer dusted with powdered gold, silver, or platinum. Once completed, beautiful seams of gold glint in the conspicuous cracks of ceramic wares, giving a one-of-a-kind appearance to each repaired piece. This unique method celebrates each artifact's unique history by emphasizing its fractures and bricks instead of hiding or disguising them. In fact, Kinzuki often makes the prepared piece even more beautiful than the original, revitalizing it with a new look and giving it a second life. And brothers and sisters, that is what God does for us when we come to Him. So let's come to God and offer up our brokenness in spirit and heart and receive from him true forgiveness and healing. And there we may bear fruit in word, thought, and deed in grateful service of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now before the music thing comes up to lead us in our closing song, can I now invite you to pray Calvin's confession prayer together with me. There are two slides, so just follow me on the slide. We pray slowly and reflect on the meaning of these words. Take some time to read. Let's pray. Lord God, eternal and almighty Father, we acknowledge before your holy majesty that we are poor sinners, conceived and born in guilt and in corruption, prone to do evil, unable of our own power to do good, 
Because of our sin, we endlessly violate your holy commandments. But, O Lord, with heartfelt sorrow, we repent and turn away from all our offenses. We condemn ourselves and our evil ways with true sorrow, asking that your grace will relieve our distress. Have compassion on us, most gracious God, Father of mercies, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and in removing our guilt, also grant us daily increase of the grace of your Holy Spirit and produce in us the fruits of holiness and of righteousness, pleasing in your sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <laughs>